Is becoming a new manager really that hard? Is gossiping at work good for you? Is it okay to take meetings from a salon chair in the middle of the workday? These are the kinds of questions and hot topics we dive into every day on our hit newsletter, Girlboss Daily. What else can you expect? Dream job postings, A-plus career advice, and a few emojis, because we're fun like that. All delivered right to your inbox. Join 250,000 ambitious women and sign up at girlboss.com newsletter. That's girlboss.com newsletter. Welcome back to Girlboss Radio. I'm your host, Avery. I'm the founder and CEO of Bloom, a workplace design consultancy and a firm believer that work should work for all of us. Today, I'm joined by a friend of mine, Michelle Romano. Michelle is the co-founder of Canadian e-commerce merchant ClearCo, a dragon on Dragon's Den. That's the Canadian version of Shark Tank, by the way, and a tireless supporter of fellow entrepreneurs. Michelle and I have been internet friends for a while, but we officially met a year ago at an event and later went on to celebrate our mutual friend, Joanna Griffiths, in Miami when she sold a portion of her company, Nix. I'm really excited for our conversation. Michelle talked about starting a fish farm straight out of school, how she ended up on Dragon's Den, and how she navigated a public breakup with her business and life partner. Let's get into it. Michelle, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. I am so excited to catch up with you today. How's everything been going on your end? I am equivalently excited to catch up with you. It is so fun to do podcasts with people that I know in real life that are not just meeting for the first time. So really excited to talk to you, Avery. Yeah. So what people listening in may not know is that you and I are friends outside of the podcast and I love having friends on the podcast. And another thing that I think that people assume is that when, for me, like, I think that you're probably one of the more successful friends that I have, not that there's like a rating system at all, but like you're successful. The expectation or the assumption might be that when successful women come together, all we do is talk about work and business. And no, you and I have literally never talked about work. (laughs) So first of all, we get into trouble. We have so much fun. We joke about a million other things and I think deeply respect what each other do, but certainly don't talk about work all the time, which I think is always one of the great parts of a friendship is you can do the whole spectrum of understanding the other person. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to be able to ask you all the questions I've always wanted to ask you about work, but we've just got up to other things when we've hung out. So this is like the perfect opportunity for me to get into it. So with that, I wanted to learn a little bit more about your journey on Dragon's Den. So you joined Dragon's Den at 28 and You'd never been a vester before. What was it like to make your debut as, at the time, the youngest dragon to join the show? So I'm running this e-commerce company called Bytopia. We get this phone call on our customer service line and they're like, it's Dragon's Den and they're calling for you. And I'm like, what? Everyone in the office knows about this because like we're only like 20 people in our office or 30 people. So I'm like, this must be a prank call. So they, we still have like landlines. They transfer the call from the customer service desk to my office. And I'm like, hey, they're they're like, we're looking for you to audition. And I'm like, to pitch my business. And they're like, no, no, to be a dragon. And I'm like, they must have the wrong person, but I should just like go with it. I should show up. And I was like, great, let me get a pencil and like write down. They're like, you got to come to CBC on April 6th and like do this audition. And I'm like, holy smokes, like what are the chances? And I was woefully unprepared. I got to the audition. They auditioned with like five other people who want to be dragons. And they bring in like a real entrepreneur, like a pitcher. And they just mock do a show. And all the dragons are like talking over. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't, I don't really know what to do. And I had a really nice producer on set that was like, just keep speaking up. Just like keep getting in your words. And so I was like, okay, I got a little bit better. I think we did three mock pitches. 
So I'm leaving the studio and I'd gotten all dressed up and he goes, well, we're thinking of doing a show for younger dragons, earlier pitches that are all tech called Next Gen Den. And I was like, that's what they tell the people that didn't make it. (laughs) I was like, like, I'm pretty sure I know this is what they tell the reject list. And I think Avery, just, it was a little bit of luck and it was a lot of trying. Then they were like, okay, come audition for this. So I had a little bit of experience. I watched a bunch more shows. I tried to like figure out what makes interesting TV. I think I did better in that audition. Then they actually made this web series called Next Gen Dan, got on that. And there's a magic about TV where as soon as you see yourself for the first time, you're like, oh, a little bit of correction there. Change your eyes there. Talk a little bit more succinctly and you can start getting better and better. And then to the core of your question. So I actually get on the real show. I'm 28 years old. I fully realize I'm the youngest person there. I'm the poorest person there. I had maybe made, I don't know, two angel investments in my life before that. And I think something magical really happened, which is I saw the show and the pictures very different than everyone else had seen the show. And so what happened is, and most people don't know this, the way we film this show is we see 250 pitches in 17 days. Like it's back to back to back. Even if you're a VC, you're never seeing 10 to 12 pitches a day. That is so many. And so I'm there and I'm deeply empathetic to the pitcher because I'm like, that's me. (laughs) I haven't been an investor for very long. And I'm like, why are founders giving up all this equity in their business? We're going to take 10, 20, 30% of this company that these founders are never going to get back, especially when they're going to use all of our money on ad spend and buying inventory. And so I always thank the show so much because that is what gave me the original idea for ClearCo. I remember in my first season being like, look, I'm going to just try another deal type. I'll give you that hundred grand you're looking for. Instead of taking 10% of your business that alone forever, I want 10% of your revenue just so you pay me back my capital plus, I don't know, 8%. And the founder's like, wait a second, that's a way better deal. And the other dragon's like, well, how can you do that? And I'm like, because if I see their data, if I understand how their Facebook ads are converting, I can make that decision every single time and get my money back. And then I can do it at scale. I mean, it's been crazy. ClearCo has deployed more than $5 billion to more than 10,000 founders in 13 countries around the world. Like the scale of what we got to is to me still really extraordinary. And I think it actually all came from forcing myself to feel super uncomfortable. I mean, it was so uncomfortable to join a television show at 28 when I didn't know what I was doing. It was so uncomfortable to do that when I didn't have the same wealth as the other dragons beside me. And it was that experience of genuinely having a different perspective that allowed me to create a very different business. A decade this had been going on and no one was like, oh, let's change the deal type. And it was just because I had just been that founder. That's amazing. And that happened during your second episode. You decided to flip the traditional Dragon's Den pitch from equity to revenue. And then this inspired you to go on to build ClearCo. And this is the invention of a revenue-based financing category. And I know a lot of founders and also clients of Bloom that have benefited from this model. So it's interesting when you talk about how this has impacted and shifted the support that founders get and the support that specifically underrepresented founders get. Having access to capital, especially in the e-com space to scale your business is so important. And what I'd come across in the conversations you'd had is that essentially there's a big barrier that prevents founders from getting access to fair capital. And you built a solution for that. First of all, you cannot say you care about founders if you do not care about how founders get capital to build their business. There's only so much a course and education and all that other like kind of bullshit, let me call it that, can do. You need capital to genuinely scale your business. You might only need capital for six months or for 12 months, but if you can't figure out how to fuel your fire, it's really hard. And so capital has traditionally been 
basically one of two things. You either go to a bank, a bank says, oh, we don't understand any part of your business, but we understand you personally, Michelle. So we'll give you $100,000, but it has a personal guarantee, which most people didn't understand. That means they can take all of the money in your personal bank account and your house and any other assets. It is hugely punitive when things are, oh, and your business alongside any assets of your business and any assets of your personal. So you have to be really, really sure if you are leveraging your house. And I mean, you hear tons of entrepreneurial stories. Chip Wilson on his sixth Lululemon store remortgaged his house and put his house on the line to keep building it. This was happening 10 years ago. And then the other option was to go to venture capitalists and to say, look, I'm willing to sell a piece of my business and you invest in it. And venture capitalists didn't try and be evil. They didn't systematically think, oh, we should just give 2% of our funds to women. No one has that, that nonsense in mind when they go up. But you have to look at how an industry is formed. So what happens is 80% of VCs went to one of two schools, Harvard or Stanford. And venture capital is a human-to-human -human business. So I have to meet you. I have to trust you. I have to believe that you have what it takes. And so what happens is those networks keep getting stronger and stronger. And it keeps getting more and more dangerous and risky to go outside of those networks. So that's why the same classic college, Stanford, undergrad dropout keeps getting capital, has way too much capital. And you have so many people with incredible businesses across America that can't get access to capital. And it actually still blows my mind, the level of diversity that we've had in our portfolio. I mean, without doing anything, half of our portfolio is women. A quarter of our founders didn't go to post-secondary education. A third of our founders are BIPOC. These are numbers that are like crazy if someone were to set them as a goal and just measure them. And it literally just happened. And I've met so many of our founders and they just didn't have access to those circles because they didn't go to the right schools and they didn't know the right people. But they certainly know that they got to buy a product for $2 and sell it for eight. They certainly like understand how to run a lean, mean, badass business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what you'd mentioned around like just unintentionally coming across building a business that helped and supported people from so many backgrounds and specifically supporting people from historically marginalized communities. What's interesting about all this is that you removed all the barriers that prevents people from these communities from getting access to funding or in general, getting access to like products and services like yours. And that is like what pushes society forward. Again, I graduated in 2007. No one was becoming an entrepreneur at a school in 2007. I started a fish farm with my co-founder, Anatoly, in 2007. We were nuts. Which I want to talk about. We will talk about it in a second. We have to talk about this. <laughs> but like, we were not doing what everyone else was doing. And so I think early on, I was like very much, you feel a bit plucked as like the token female entrepreneur. You know what I mean? Like have Michelle join the panel. I was like, do you want me here because I have something valuable to say and I built a valuable business? or? Am I a representation? And I think I got so allergic to that. And then funds actually started doing that. They started saying, well, this is the fund that's just for women. And I know all of this stuff was incredibly well-intentioned, but you know what that does? It actually says inadvertently, well, you weren't strong enough to be in the fund for men. So now you're in a different fund. And so you're like, I know you didn't want it to be that way. I know you had all the best intentions to put the money out in the right place. But I saw the early seeds of that, I think, at the beginning of my career. And I was like, no, there's got to be a better way to do this. And you're 100% right. I've seen now so many pitch decks that have started with founders saying, look, I can build this business because I know ClearCo will back it. That's amazing. And people just have to be like, look, I just need to create great business metrics, which is all you've ever needed to do to build a good business, right? Like it should have never been evaluated 
on anything else. And you should have the choice as a founder of if you want to build a lifestyle business that pays for you and your family and your extended family, or if you want to shoot for the moon and try and take this thing to the stars. And sometimes that means that things don't always work out as planned, but that should be a founder's choice and never your investor's choice. Yeah, absolutely. So getting into this conversation about the your, your early, I think this was like the first business that you founded, right? It's just a funny little story that I think is just so interesting and everyone needs to hear it. I'm an undergrad. I meet this guy named Dan Atoli, who is also in civil engineering. And he's like, oh, we got to like enter these business plan competitions because like you win a bunch of money. I was doing this because I built a little coffee shop on campus trying to raise money for it. And he's like, well, we got to figure out something to enter a business plan with. So we spent all of our time brainstorming what's the next million dollar idea. Someone was like, oh, should we like build a forest to make expensive wood for furniture? And Angela was like, oh, if we're going to farm anything, it's going to be the most expensive product, which is caviar. So we started like Googling caviar. We literally did this off a Google search. We figure out that worldwide supply is down by like 95%. The world has overfished the Caspian Sea. And we're like, okay, how do we know how to make caviar? I just want to be clear, Avery, I had never gone fishing before. I had never tasted caviar before. I had no parents in the fishing business. And we were crazy enough to like find the university professor that knew everything about sturgeon to figure out how to do this. We wrote this big business plan. We entered like 10 business plan competitions and won six of them. So we graduated with like $100,000 in prize money, which was amazing. I mean, there's three of us. It wasn't like we had a lot of money, but that felt like a lot at the time. And so we just said, look, we're going to move to the East Coast and build a fishery from scratch. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Boats, fishermen, my hands knee deep in fish, us processing these fish, us cold calling restaurants to sell this stuff. And we had built a really successful business at the end of the summer because the farm to table movement was just starting to happen and chefs love the product. And then we got a giant recession in 2008. And I realized I'm 21 years old selling the world's most unnecessary luxury product. And that was a real wake up call for me. And so we tried a bunch of other businesses. None of them worked. Finally got a job at a corporation for a year because I was like, oh my God, I, I'm not going to make it through this recession. But I think that's what it takes. A lot of people are like, I would like to be you, or I like look up to you, or I'm inspired by you. Those are all really beautiful things to say to me. But like, I need you to follow me for a day. I need you to see how messy my life is. I need you to see that every single week I have a massive blow up. And there's a huge problem in one of my businesses, even when I'm 15 years into being a founder. And I don't think everyone has the stomach for that, nor should have the stomach for that. But I always want to be clear on what it took. And everything I learned from gutting and cutting up fish and negotiating with fishermen and all of that stuff, it's all the same. It's just a different scale. It's a slightly different group of people. But this is a full fight every day to build something from scratch. And if you think it's going to be anything else, you're going to be disappointed. I love what you said about follow me for a day because I get comments like that too. Everyone wants to be a founder. They want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't think that everyone either wants to or can handle all that comes along with it. It is so hard. And here's the other secret. I thought as I went up, it would get easier. I thought as more people knew me, as I had more brand recognition, as revenues got bigger, $100 million in revenue fucking massive problems. <laughs> like It just doesn't change. And so you have to be ready. You have to love the fight. You have to see the humor in all of it. You have to have a really tight group of people around you because it is not only hard, but it's really lonely because there's just very few people who can possibly empathize. 
But like as a founder, there is zero guarantees, zero. The world owes you absolutely nothing. And so A, you have to really improve yourself and really look inward when you fuck up. And B, you just don't become a very cocky fucking person because you understand that things could change very, very quickly for you. And so you just become like a, a joy and a delight to be around because you're very real. And I think that's why people love talking to you and they love working with other founders because it's very hard to get ahead of your skis when the world is constantly correcting you. We go through a lot of emotions in one workday. You feel like a success in the morning and a complete failure by the afternoon. That's why we created our Workplace Affirmation Deck, a 50-card deck to help you cope with every kind of day at the office. It's divided by five emotions. When you're feeling unstoppable, when you're craving change, when you're feeling uncertain, when you totally messed up, and when you just can't even. Prop one on your desk, tuck it in a notebook, or even pass one along to a friend who could use it. Get yours today at girlboss.com slash affirmations. That's girlboss.com slash affirmations. You're listening to my conversation with my friend, Michelle. Next up, Michelle talks about why she loves to be underestimated. Let's get back into it. What do you think that TikTok or in social media at large is getting wrong when it comes to like advice that people are giving about thriving in your career? So one of the things that I feel like social media is always talking about is boundaries. Let's be clear. Boundaries when you date, boundaries with other people, totally get that support. Let's leave that aside. I just want to be clear. I would have never made it as a founder if I had boundaries. I didn't get to choose. When something blows up, you don't get to be like, oh, I'll deal with this in a couple of hours. There is no boundary you set. And there's so much of this boundary nonsense. It's like, if you're in a gold mine mining for something and there's a fire, are you like, I'm not mentally ready to deal with this? Like, I know that's an extreme example, but it feels like there's a lot of this narrative around me and am I okay? And are my feelings okay? Versus you have to be a servant leader. You are there for your team. And when something blows up, you don't get to be in your own world at that moment. And I've become very good at this. So then when I don't have things blow up at work, I run around on the weekend and have a good time. And it doesn't mean you don't have personal time. And it doesn't mean you don't have time by yourself, but it means that when you build something, I don't think you get the luxury of this boundary. I think that's something that you can reserve when you work for something else, that you don't work during certain hours. And that doesn't mean you can't have time for your kids and have time for other things, but I just, I always find that one a bit bizarre. It's like, just set your boundaries and you'll be okay. Sometimes you have to work really hard and sometimes you should be on vacation. We should celebrate those two equally because it's about what you want to do, not what the world wants you to do. One of my boundaries is that I don't work past 6 p.m., but there's been many a times in my career where I've had to, and I felt totally okay with doing it because that's what I need to do to A, support myself, B, support my team, and C, support the people that choose to partner with Bloom over every other firm they could potentially partner with. Yeah. There's this great line at work that are like strong opinions loosely held. I think this is perfect for here. It's like strong boundaries loosely held, right? It's like, yeah, I'm aiming to not work past this hour, but when I need to, my team needed me, the company needed me. And that's maybe the other thing is like, there's no, there's no shortcut to success. Like you got to take the stairs. There's just like, there's no elevator. It's just every single time you got to walk up. So you've talked about being a founder. I'm curious, what do you think makes the difference between a good founder and an excellent one? Oh, what a good question. There is a resilience 
every time you are tested as an excellent founder, that is a combination of chip on your shoulder. I'm not going to let things go down like that. And just sheer fucking determination. There is a relentlessness around solving the same problem. I celebrate this all the time at ClearCo. We have solved problems that we have taken seven tries at organizationally. Tried the first time with this group of people. It didn't work. Tried this time. It was a failure. Tried this time. And then like on the seventh time, nailed it. We got it. But I remind people how many times we had to get to to try and solve the same problem. And solving new problems is always a bit more exciting because it's like, oh, you never heard it. You did brainstorm. You, as soon as you've actually tried, you've tried to fucking crack a nut and it hasn't worked, you have all the scar tissue around. Well, it didn't work last time, but all the negative Nancy's, let's not do this. Those are where you get real, real, real breakthroughs. So one of the big myths about entrepreneurship is that great ideas come from like a single idea and a single brainstorm because we do that to condense the story, right? Even on Dragon's Den, it wasn't a single day and a single deal that got me this massive idea for Dragon's Den. It was that deal plus another deal, plus trying things, plus where banking software and APIs were. Like there was like 40 factors that went into getting that product right for the right time for the right market. It's a level of determination. It's a level of fight that you're like, I am showing up for round two with more energy than I had in round one even though I've given it everything I had. And people are like, well, what kind of people are that? And the best part about this, Avery, is those people are from every walk of life. Some of those kids are rich kids whose parents just totally doubted them and they have such a chip on their shoulder, like, I'm going to do this. Some of them are kids with absolutely nothing who are like, this is my one shot to make this work. Some of them are people with your background who are like, I tried all the other stuff and it was so shitty. I'm not going back to that no matter what. And all of those, so it's, it's really hard to pinpoint. You can't like say this is like a personality trait or a, a background trait or a walk of life trait. It's a determination of, I am just going to be the last person left standing. At Girlboss, we're all about defining success on your own terms. I'm curious what being successful means to you. Success is being able to do what you want when you want to do it. And really, it's the only justification ever to make money is the freedom to choose what you want to do. And I think one of the great things about starting a company is you get to choose your colleagues. When you go work for someone, you are put in a group with a bunch of other people that you may or may not like. When you're the boss of your own company, you get to select all of those people. And so although there's a million things that are harder, that actually generates a great source of joy. And you look back after making money, having success, having all the like, what I'd call like commercial things. And the thing that gives you the most amount of joy is the relationships you've had with the other humans in your life. And I think there's lots of research about this, but I think it actually like really rings true in my heart, right? I'm still best friends with my, my business partner I met 18 years ago. I've been the closest with my colleagues and those have given me an incredible source of joy in my life. And so when people think about success, they got to think about the strength of the relationships they have in their life. I love that. And what do you think, you founded like over five companies now at this point. What do you wish you knew before you founded your first company? I say that I wish I would have known how hard it was, but then I, I might've not ever bothered to start. I think I sweated a ton of small details in the early days. Every decision felt like life and death. Everything seemed so so difficult. And today I look at that and I'm like, oh my God, I know it sounds super cliche, but just like, don't sweat the small stuff. You're going to feel like everything is going to destroy your business. And I don't know, 5% of those things are actually going to destroy your business. And so just keeping that sense of perspective is really, really important. 
Yeah. And I love what you said earlier about the people that you build with. I don't know where I saw it. I think it was a meme and it was like, what's better, the journey or the destination? And then the response was the company and the company you keep is so important. So I think that that's, that's huge. So I asked you what your definition of success is. I'm curious if you believe that you're successful today. No, because I think once you tell yourself you've made it or you're successful, you've like stopped trying and you believe your own bullshit a little bit. I don't believe that I'm better than anyone. And it literally happens with everything. Like I'll get on a call and every single call get on with someone that I've never met before. I'm like, I'm Michelle. Here's my story. Started by building a fishery, built an e-commerce store, built Clearco. And like so many people are like, why do you even do that? Everyone knows who you are and everyone knows that you're like a big deal. And I'm like, no, they don't. People are not responsible for knowing who you are. You have to earn every piece of respect. No one needs to listen to you. That's not a God-given right of yours. And so look, I'm proud of myself. My life has exceeded my wildest expectations. I was born in Calgary. I spent from kindergarten to grade six in Regina, Saskatchewan. I mean, that is a small town with a lot of prairie folk, right? Like that's a town where like everyone was a farmer. All of the things that I've been afforded to do, I think been in many ways, very lucky. I think lots of people ask me the question about, well, how does it feel when you're a woman? And like, you know, do you feel unfairly treated? And I'm like, no, because I look back a generation. Let's say my grandmother had the exact same genes that I did. I mean, her life career options were like, school teacher, secretary, or nurse. And I can tell you, Avery, I would have been terrible at all three of those things. <laughs> like, um, and so I feel very lucky that I was born in a time and a generation where I could do very, very different things, that all of these opportunities were afforded to me. None of it was easy. I don't think it's ever easy. And I don't think I've been successful. I think I'm proud of what I've done, but I think that I'm just also still like a little kid from Saskatchewan that has gotten to build a few things and figure out a few things. One more thought for you. You really prompted me to think about this when you asked me about what makes an excellent founder different from an average founder. The other thing that I think is really critical is you have to really understand if people underestimating you gives you the desire to pull back or more motivation to succeed. Let me be very clear. As a founder, people won't believe 90% of the things you are saying because you are trying to do something that hasn't been done before. That is most people's jobs is to be skeptical. And they're actually accurate. What you're trying to do is a low probability event. But you can look at that and, and especially women will get so frustrated. They're like, I'm constantly being underestimated, constantly being underestimated. And here's my secret. I love being underestimated. Oh, that's cool. You think I was the secretary? Just watch me. Just watch me. I'm going to blow your socks off. and then. You have to pose a different question to yourself. Well, would you rather be underestimated or overestimated? I would rather be underestimated all day long because that is so much easier. You just watch me because I am so determined and I will outwork you and I will just be relentless in trying to get to that level of success. It's interesting that multiple things can be true simultaneously. It just depends on who is overestimating you versus underestimating you, right? If you're like a woman founder and you're out there and you're trying to raise money and you're being underestimated, of course that impacts you because you're not getting access perhaps to capital. Can you get yourself motivated when one person underestimates you? I love that. So 
I've had a question that I've wanted to ask you for a long time. And as friends, we don't really talk about work that often, but I know that you used to work closely with your longtime partner and more people than ever before. It seems like loads of people are co-founding and building businesses with their romantic partners, which I think is very interesting. I've never done that, but I'm very curious about it. What was it like to navigate a breakup while you'd work together? It wasn't easy. First of all, Andrew and I started ClearCo together. We literally dreamed up the idea in my apartment, worked tirelessly by each other. And there were some huge advantages in doing that. The first is that you're with your co-founder all the time. So you're iterating ideas all the time. There's not a single day you're going to bed without having made a decision because you're literally with each other all the time. It's tremendously efficient. You effectively work all the time, but you don't hate working all the time because you're building something together. The relationship between co-founders is likely the most important relationship in a business. And then, so what was it like navigating a breakup? I mean, I think that Andrew and I have just such a deep amount of respect for one another as humans. I think we did a really good job working with a therapist as we did this. And we understood that there was a lot at stake. At that moment, we were worth two and a half billion dollars and had 500 employees. And we're like, we can choose to fight and all of these people are going to suffer or we can choose to be really decent and reasonable and figure out how to redivide our roles and responsibilities and everything else to get the best outcome. I think that is a choice you make. And I understand why some people can't do that. But I think that is always a choice you make is to be a decent person or not. And ultimately, I have a great love for Andrew and I didn't want to fight and I didn't want to make that a fight. And I don't think he did either. And so we were able to navigate that. And it wasn't perfect. And I'm sure there was a couple of hiccups as we were doing it. But for the most part, I think we did. We did a really good job. I think the other thing that I hate the word X I find that the strangest thing. People are like ex-boyfriend. Ex is like something you should describe for like something you discard after you use it. Like a used tampon is like an ex-tampon. <laughs> Not to use something an aggressive analogy. But like, would you ever describe your university years as your like ex-college years? You would just describe that as like a great chapter of your life. You're like, I had an amazing time at university. That was an incredible chapter of my life. And now I'm in a new chapter of life. But it doesn't mean like that's an ex. And so I think I've always thought about that. And like Andrew and I truly made ourselves better humans. We were probably like, we had an amazing relationship in our thirties. I think we built each other to be very different people as a result of that. And I think that's the other thing is like, I would reframe that you can break up with someone and that not be an ex, that just be a different chapter. I love that. I think that's so great. So if any of my exes are listening, don't refer to me as your ex anymore because you did not discard me. (laughs) Yeah. Relationships of any form can be great mirrors and they're great teachers. So at least this is what my therapist says to me. Okay. So rapid fire, we're, we're wrapping up the conversation now. I know I've like, I have just fired all these questions at you. This season we're doing in or out and I'm curious what your thoughts are on in or out. So first and foremost, rapid fire. Cover letters. Out. Slack. In, but I hate it. (laughs) Post-interview thank you notes. Always in. Five-day work week. Um, Lots of pressure to do something else. I think five-day work week is always going to be in. (laughs) Thirsty Thursdays. What's that? Drinks. After work drinks. Oh, probably out, but coming back in. Okay. Working in office. Oh. On the fence. Hybrid, different, different. The ability to see each other, but we're not going back to a five-day work week in the office. Okay, cool. Awesome. So 
before we wrap up, do you have anything you would like to leave our listeners with today? My call to your listeners is be a founder. I think there's a million things that will rationally tell you to not do it. It will never seem like the right time in life. You'll never seem like you have enough money. You'll never seem like you have enough skills, but it is both simultaneously the hardest and most rewarding career you could possibly want. It is the career where you could have more impact than I think nearly anything else. And we're in a unique place where people want to hear from all the founders. And the more people we have building, the better world we get to have. And so I hope we didn't scare you. (laughs) I hope people don't take away that this is hard. People take away that they can do it because I don't think Avery or I had any special magical powers starting in this. I think we had a sense of determination that things could be done better. I think we had a sense of grit that we weren't going to let small things overcome us, but it's a pretty epic ride and we meet some pretty great friends along the way. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm going to echo all those things. And that's a wrap on this episode of Girl Boss Radio. I hope you enjoyed this one. It's always nice to invite you into conversations with my close friends on the podcast. Tune in next week for another candid chat with a special guest. Until then, please rate this episode or leave a comment to let us know what you thought. This podcast is produced by Liz Goober and Victoria Christie and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming.